We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, I think there's some available at the back table. Some of those blue Bibles, so you can follow along. We do, uh, we do show it up on the screen as well, but encourage you to, to have a Bible in your hands if you can. We're continuing our series in 1 Peter 3, learning to live as elect exiles, what it, what it means to belong to the Lord in a world that is largely resistant to Him and His ways, living as strangers in a strange land. And Peter, and God through Peter, does such a wonderful job of teaching us about how to be elect exiles, how we are to live and think and do, and worship, and all these things. So we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. So let's pray this morning for God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful that You've given us this wonderful book, and that it is Your very words. And through these words, Lord, we experience life. We behold Your glory. We are shaped by You and we find ourselves listening to You, Yourself, speaking to our souls by the power of the Spirit. We thank You for that. Lord, we need You and we need to hear from You this morning. And Lord, we pray that You would do that. You would speak to us. Lord, I pray that You would use me. Lord, I am a limited, sinful man. I thank You. Thank You for the blood and righteousness of Christ. I'm forgiven. And Lord, You've given grace to your people and to me, to serve your purposes. So our confidence is in you. And my prayer, Lord, is that as I seek to serve you and your people, that I would be out of the way, Lord, that in a sense I would disappear and your words and your speaking will come forth, that we would go from this place having heard from you and being in wonder at you and your ways. So speak to us, O God. Pour out Your Spirit, Lord. We need You. We thank You, Holy Spirit. You love to draw attention to the Father and the Son. And so we pray, Lord, You'd work in us, individually and corporately, that we might hear from You, live for You this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Verses 13 through 17. I'm going to need reading glasses one of these days. This is a section that Peter's continuing to teach us about living as elect exiles in light of the hardships that we might face in life and the temptations. He says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter 3, 13-17 
There was a reality TV show that ran some years ago, and you can probably guess which one that I'm talking about by the title of today's message, Fear Factor. There was a show called Fear Factor that ran on NBC. I never watched it. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it was often too gross and coarse and vulgar even much of the time. But it was a competition where the, the contestants competed by doing three stunts. And there were teams of two and so forth against one another. There were three different stunts. And, and all these stunts involved some aspect of a, of a task they were asked to do that would induce fear in them. So often it was something that was really gross. It was one of the stunts. So they had to maybe eat bugs or something like that or do something with slop or some, some gross thing. Or there was some dangerous thing they had to do or some great physical stunt. Uh, had to jump off a building or put their hands into snakes. Things like that. It was called the fear factor. And it was very popular. I think perhaps in some ways that there was a, a sense of camaraderie as we watched people deal with their fears. They, they had tapped into something that was very marketable for us. It was a popular show. See, fear is a reality for every human being. We all experience fear. And most of the time, our fears are not the sort that are, we're on the fear factor. They're often just more run-of-the-mill sort of fears. Many of us, most of us, will never have to put our hand in a bucket of snakes or eat bugs or anything like that. Hopefully, you don't ever have to eat bugs. Our fears are, are more run-of-the-mill, but, but, but it is true that fear does characterize us as humans. And I would submit that for many of us, much of the time, fear is a real motivation in life. It is something that compels us. It motivates us. It can be a determining factor for our lives. The motivating fears for our lives are, are usually not the sort on the show, but are more things like fear of an accident, fear of failure, fear of tragedy perhaps, or fear of unhappiness, or fear of loss of wealth or health or relationships. And often we can have fear of fear itself as well. These are common ones that we face. Fear is a reality for all of us. And Peter in this section today addresses his original readers and through him God addresses us in this reality of living often and fear. And God comes to us through 1 Peter 3, 13-17 to speak truth to us that we might have the way we deal with fear entirely rearranged and transformed. So let's dig into 1 Peter 3, 13-17 and learn about what we're supposed to fear. The bottom line Peter is bringing us is that we are to fear God not man. Fear God and not man. Peter is writing this letter, we remember, to these elect exiles, these strangers in a strange land, these people who, who live in a, a culture that is largely opposed to the Lord. And, and we all live in that same reality. We are all called to that. All Christians throughout history are called to Christ, live in Christ, but live in a culture that to one degree or another is opposed to Christ. And there's a lot of different ideas out about how to live in culture, a, a, a key question that theologians and philosophers ask is what does it mean to be a Christian in the culture? How does Christ and culture relate? 
And there are different ways to approach this. There, I think, are at least two extremes that we might use in dealing with culture. Two extremes that are there. There is the extreme of saying, well, we're, we're Christians and, and culture is evil. And so we need to pull away from culture. We need to isolate ourselves. We need to form this subculture, this place where, where Christians live and where we're safe from the influences of culture and we can kind of build the kingdom over here where we really love each other and we do the right thing. We do it in isolation. We cloister. That's one answer. Another answer can be kind of the, on the other end that says, no, 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 we need to dive into culture because we're on a mission as Christians to redeem the culture. And, and we're going we're gonna to work, we're going to give our all to redeem culture, redeem every aspect of society. And we're, we're going to do it fully expecting to change everything. Neither of those two extremes are really what's in First Peter. There's aspects of them that are true. But we're not to do that. First Peter doesn't teach us. We're neither to isolate ourselves from the culture nor expect that in our activity, we will ever fully redeem culture, this side of Christ's return. Peter, here in in this whole book and in the rest of Scripture, presents something different. We are called to live radically counter-culture lifestyles while we fully engage the culture with our eyes on Christ, seeking indeed to redeem people and society, but recognizing there will continue to be suffering and persecution and opposition Christ comes back. That's the picture of 1 Peter 3. That's the picture that Peter is presenting in the whole book. And this section falls within that. If this is a question you wonder about, I encourage you to meditate on 1 Peter. And also there's a great book, I think on a bookshelf, by D.A. Carson called Christ and Culture, where he does a wonderful job of addressing the big picture of this. But Peter's writing to people who feel this tension. They live in a world that to some degree doesn't like Christians and doesn't like Christ. And, and because of that truth, they live in some degree of fear. Because people don't like their message and perhaps don't like them. They experience fear in this reality. So for all of us, really, who live in the same reality, where we are Christians living in a culture that does not fully embrace Christianity and Christ, there's going to be fear. It's going to operate in our lives. There's going to be fear in our lives. So Peter brings truth to them here in this section. Now their fears are more serious than ours presently. Because they live in this culture that's opposed to Christianity, they're not just facing perhaps people that don't like what they say and kind of snub them or whatever, or people or society that doesn't really fully embrace Christianity and may create somewhat unfavorable laws at times. That's not what they're experiencing. They're experiencing people that so oppose them that these people might lose their jobs or their possessions, their friendships, even their lives. And Peter's call to them is the same as his call to us, God's call ultimately, to not fear men. Do not fear men, but fear God. And that is the, the core of this paragraph in 1 Peter 3 is this call to not fear men, but to fear God. And the, the core section of this paragraph, verses 13 through 17, is in verses 14 through 15. It's where he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have none of the fear that they have. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. That is the the core statement that Peter's making to us. That, actually, that section right there, those, those ten words or whatever they are, is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah. And we know Peter well enough, we know our New Testament well enough, hopefully, to know that, that the New Testament fits right with the Old Testament, that, that the New Testament is really the fulfillment an explanation of the truths that are contained in the Old Testament. So Peter, as a a good believer and a good Jew, is thinking biblically. And as he's seeking to help his people, there are verses coming to mind. There are truths and parts of Scripture that come to mind. So as he's seeking to address this area of fear, Isaiah 8 comes to mind. So if we could put Isaiah 8 up there, and you could turn there if you'd like as well. I think you have it to put up. Let me quote the entire section. Isaiah 8, 11-15. In this section, God is bringing judgment on Israel. He's bringing judgment on them through these nations that are invading Israel. And, and there's, a, there's a promise that He will do this. And the people are living in rebellion. He calls Isaiah as His prophet, as His mouthpiece to proclaim the truth, to call the people to repentance, to proclaim God's holiness and also God's promise of salvation to those who would receive it. And so Isaiah is called, and Isaiah is spoken to directly in this passage because he lives as a stranger in a strange land himself. And God says to Isaiah, in this section says, For the Lord spoke thus to me while his strong hand, with his strong hand upon me and, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And then our quote, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. God speaks to Isaiah and says, don't fear what they fear. But instead, set apart the Lord of hosts. You shall honor Him as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. That's the quotation that's in 1 Peter 3. That's the quotation, that's the core of God's declaration to Isaiah as he lives in that place. Don't fear what they fear. Fear God. Set apart the Lord as holy. Let Him be the one you fear. So Peter lifts that quotation and puts it in his section, but he changes a couple things. Do you see what he changes? Who does he call us to set apart as holy? The Lord of hosts, as it says in Isaiah 8? Yes, but by another name. What's the name? Jesus. That's always the good answer, right? Christ. Set apart Christ as holy. So he lifts this section of Scripture and and brings it to his readers that they might hear God, that they might hear what Isaiah heard and they might live as Isaiah lived. We need this message just like Isaiah did. Just like Peter's readers did. We need this message, this call to not fear what men fear. 
but to fear God. And the fear of God in Scripture doesn't mean this, this servile quaking before God, though it can mean that at times. It's, it's a bigger picture. It means to live in reverence to God. It means to live in reference to God. It means that your point of reference is not men or this other thing that you're afraid of. Your point of reference is God Himself. You live your life in reference to God. He is the one whose opinion you most value. He is your point of reference. That's what it means to live in fear of the Lord. It's to regard Him as most important and His opinion as most valuable and His truth as most essential. That's to live in the fear of the Lord. We need this message. Because there's a lot to fear. There are many things to fear. Our world lives in fear. And it shows itself in many different ways. Many different ways. All of us are motivated by fear. Perhaps as you're listening to this, you're thinking, yes, indeed, this does describe me and how I live. I go from one fear to another. It's all around us. And in some ways, our Society plays on this. Uh, there are actually some things that have happened that I think are largely good things. There's a lot of safety things out there today that are good. I, I have nothing wrong with safety. I think God calls us to, to be wise. That's scriptural, actually. We're, we're not to leave the, the, the well open so that somebody can fall in. That's right in Scripture. So there's a safety measures. But, but in a sense, the, the safety industry has played on our fears. There are safety measures available now that were not available 30 years ago. I, I see it particularly with children. And, and again, I'm not knocking these things. It's good to protect your children. But the market for this stuff is, is grown and grown and grown. I've just started to look at some of the things that are out there for, for child safety. When, I, when we were first having children, there were a few things here and there. Uh, but, but nothing like today. Now you can, you, you can and actually... The, the marketing industry would tell you you must get such things as safety locks and latches for every door, every cabinet, safety security gates. If you have a pool, you need a pool monitor to, to sound an alarm if the waves, if it makes any waves in case someone falls in. You, you should probably get a closed-circuit TV system to watch your child when they're at play or at sleep. Door locks, doorknob covers. You want those covers so that they can't turn the doorknob. Anti-scald devices. Of course, smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors are essential. Bumpers, corner edge protectors, outlet covers. You want to have inner cord stoppers or safety passes instead of those regular blind cords because those are dangerous. Door holders, door stoppers. Toilet and refrigerator locks are actually essential too because think of all the things that could happen with the toilet, falling in the toilet, getting locked in the refrigerator. And if you really want to keep your kids safe, get a GPS monitoring system. Because if you're really a caring parent, a GPS monitoring system is going to care for them. So listen to this advertisement. It says, GPS tracking for children. There's nothing sadder than reading about a lost child in the newspaper or seeing the story of a child gone missing on the news. Fortunately for us as parents, there is a way to avoid this type of tragedy through GPS tracking for children. Global positioning system technology can make it so that we need not worry about our children being lost as much as we used to in the past. You can imagine how much more relaxed you would be when you're able to log on to your computer at any time and know within several yards exactly where your child is. Some of the GPS kids units even have a panic button that the child can push to send an immediate alert in case of an emergency. This notification will go to both of you and the GPS tracking service so the authorities can be alerted. In the extreme scenario that your child is kidnapped, the perpetrator would likely discard the child's cell phone to avoid being tracked. However, with a small GPS tracking device attached to your child, you'll be able to locate them quickly and easily. Both you and the authorities will know exactly where your child is 
And this will increase the chances that your child is found quickly and remains unharmed. And some of you right now are thinking, I need to get a GPS system for my kid. And, and nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, I'm, it could have come in handy a few times when we had little ones. Yeah, we had one of them wander off for a while. But do you see how, in a sense, that these things play upon our fears? This kidnapping, you know, and, and all this. What could happen to your kids? Get a GPS system. We live amidst fears. And as parents, those fears can be increased as we have legitimate concerns for our children. There's all sorts of fears. One of the fears that Scripture addresses, and in this passage as well, is what's called the fear of man. The fear of man. Proverbs 29.25, I think it's today's memory verse, says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This fear is more common and probably more entrenched. It's fear of man is an undue concern for the opinions and actions of others. And I would submit that every human being struggles with the fear of man. And there's different reactions. Some people respond to the fear of man to this undue concern for people's opinions and actions by being people pleasers. They're always trying to make people happy. Then there are people who go the other way, and they're just as fearful of men as well. They say, I don't care what they think. I'm not going to do what they say. Forget it. I'm going to go do this. And they do the opposite, or they disregard. They're still living in reference to people. They're still fearing man. Their, their point of reference is still somebody's opinion, and they're rebelling against it. They're still living in the fear of man. So whether you're, you do one or the other, you live in Fear of man. It's the mistaken notion that our quality of life and our sense of self is wrapped up in a person, either their opinion or action. And it ultimately is saying that this person, this created being, is more important than the Creator Himself. Fear of man is, is at its core idolatry. It's replacing God with a person. It's saying this person's opinion and this person's actions are more sovereign and more important than God's opinion and God's actions and, and not recognizing who God is and His sovereignty. We live in reference to men instead of to God. And Scripture would call us fools. We find ourselves in love-hate relationships. A good sign that we live in the fear of man a strong sign, is if we find ourselves in love-hate relationships with people. Do you know what I mean? At one moment, you love them. It's great. I'm so glad that this guy's my friend. Why? Because he likes me right now. He's affirming me. I feel good. Nothing wrong with being affirmed. Nothing wrong with being encouraged. But I feel good about life. I feel good about myself because this person feels good about me. And then the hate side of it is, I can't stand that person. I can't believe they said that to me. Don't they know who I am? How can they speak that way to me? Do you know anybody with whom you have a love-hate relationship? Your spouse, perhaps? Your, your children? Your children? Your boss? Your neighbors? Anyone here have a love-hate relationship with somebody? I do. That's a sign that, that fear of man is the ruling motivation there. Nothing, again, wrong with wanting encouragement, enjoying encouragement. Nothing wrong with, with struggling with negative things. But if our point of reference is that person instead of God Himself, we're in trouble. We all live this way at times and struggle with this often. I can remember for me when I was a, a young man, I still as an adult struggle with this, but I remember as a young man, I, 
I was in eighth grade, and uh, some of you have probably heard my stories about young man stories. But anyhow, I was in eighth grade, and, and I was a late bloomer. I grew late, and I was only five feet tall in eighth grade, about 100 pounds. And there were these guys in my class that were big. There was one guy who was like 6'2", 180 or so, and a couple guys, and I'm this little guy. And for, for sport, uh, at lunchtime, on the way to the cafeteria, these guys would, would hip-check me into the locker and just abuse me. Uh, don't feel bad. There's more to the story. Uh, not only would they hip-check me, but I just wasn't kind of socially adept. I didn't know how to act the right way all the time. And so uh, not just the big guys, but everybody would just abuse me as, as, a, as a, a dork. That was the word back then. Um, you know, because I didn't dress right. They'd point all that. And so I lived cowering before these people, afraid of getting hit-checked, afraid of being ridiculed. I was in the fear of men. Well, then something happened. I grew. I grew. And I grew a lot. I grew like six inches in one year. And at the beginning of ninth grade, I was 5'7", 145. I was on the wrestling team. I was getting ready to go out for football. I was actually one of the better wrestlers on the team. And, and all of a sudden, all that stuff stopped. And I was through with the fear of man, right? No. I was just as much a slave then because then I loved the approval I got. And I lived for their approval. I wanted people to like me. And that's actually one of the major reasons I went out for sports. Just to, to be popular. And I, I wanted to, to get their affirmation. And I lived for that. And, and continued as a teen to do a lot of very stupid things. And when I reflect on those things, I think every time I did something really stupid, I did a lot of really stupid things, awful things. But every time, a core motivation for that behavior was the fear of man. I wanted my friends to laugh. Or I wanted my friends to think I was tough or cool or whatever. I was enslaved to the fear of man. Now, thank you, God, that there's some changes. But, but still, fundamentally, we can all be like that one way or the other. You understand what I mean? I think, does that make sense? We all are there. We all are living there. And, and Peter's writing this letter to people like us. Now, the fear of man for the people in Asia Minor that Peter's addressing is a little more intense than our fear of man. It isn't just about getting hit checked in the locker and people calling you a dork and things like that, or just as Christians, someone saying, you know, you're just a, a Bible bigot. I don't want to hear you. It's more serious than that. They are facing loss of life real persecution, perhaps even torture and death. And yet Peter is calling them to the same thing. I had a friend who preached a message on the fear of man, and he had given it here in the States, and very effective uh, in bringing the truth of God. And he went over to India and gave the same message on the fear of man. And it, and it was through a translator. He didn't know all that was being said. At, at the end of the message, there was a time to respond and, and to be prayed for and go before the Lord. And all these Indian pastors, there was a pastor's conference, came forward. And they were sharing that they had sinned in this way, that they had feared God, had feared man more than God, and had compromised their, their lives. And as my friend drew out what the situation was, these guys were facing beatings and death for preaching Christ. And they were recognizing that for them, fear of man was operating in their lives, that they were afraid of people for much more significant reasons than we face. But it's the same heart. Peter's writing to people like these pastors in India and to us. And the call for all is the same. Do not fear 
them. Do not fear what they fear. Fear God. We are not to fear man. We are to fear God. Now that may be easier said than done, right? You guys probably could have told me that at the beginning of the message. Yeah, we know. Not fear man, but fear God. But Peter doesn't leave us just with a simple command. He fills this section with truths that undergird our ability to fear God. And really the entirety of Scripture as well. He starts out this passage. What does he say? Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is on the heels of quoting Psalm 34. You remember in the earlier passage where there is the the truth that God presides over all things and His eyes are looking toward the One who trusts in Him and does righteously. His ears are open to their prayer. And His face is against those who do evil. There is a God who is in control of all things and eager to hear the prayers of His people who trust in Him and walk in His ways to listen and to reward them whether that reward be now, remember we talked about last week, temporally, or even more significantly, eternally. They will be rewarded. So he says, Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are one who trusts in the Lord and walks in His ways, who is going to harm you? Who can truly harm you? We have some verses that go with this. Jesus Himself said it this way, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Paul says it this way. I read it earlier. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you truly? They may do terrible things to you. In our society, it's not going to be that serious. They might call us names. They may frown at us. And, and you and I can run away. Oh, we don't want them to do that. It's a terrible thing. Our lives are wrapped around it. But it's silly. They can't really do anything. And even if we lived in the society that Peter's addressing, or in India, present-day India, what can they ultimately do? Yes, indeed, they can take the body. They cannot affect the soul. The one who belongs to the Lord, through Christ, by grace, through faith, belongs to the Lord and will always belong to the Lord. And the Lord will always preside over their life and be there for them and will take Him to Himself and reward them for their behavior and their faith in the Lord. First Peter teaches and Scripture teaches if you belong to God, there's absolutely nothing to truly fear in life. God Himself rules over the whole universe and every single thing that happens. There is no good that occurs apart from that which flows from Him and His gracious being. And conversely, there is no evil that occurs apart from His wise, just, and measured permission. He presides over good and evil. He is the author of good. He is the permitter of evil. And so Peter, at the end of this section, hints to that. He he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You only suffer. You only experience evil. And as serious as it is, I never want to downplay that reality. There's real suffering, real evil. It's not 
ever trite. But we will only experience those things by God's permission. And God Himself will preside over all those things to work His purposes in and through our lives. We don't always understand what those purposes are. We can't always figure it out. There's a lot of suffering that doesn't make sense now. But this truth remains in Scripture whether we understand the purpose of the suffering. Whether we feel overwhelmed by it or not, this truth remains. God is sovereign and Lord of it all. He presides over it. Who is there to harm you? Who is there to truly harm you? God is in control. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He's given His Son already. His Son suffered evil more than you or I will ever, or anybody will ever suffer evil as He bore our sins on the cross, as He received the just penalty for my sins and all believers' sins as He bore our sins on the cross and suffered. He endured great evil. The Father gave Him up for us all. And He he did this for us. How can He not, and why would He not take care of all things? So, why do we fear? Why do we fear men? God Himself has done this in Christ for us. And if you are a believer, this is for you. He is yours. And if you would, anybody, turn and trust in Christ, this is yours. This truth of the Gospel comes in to our fear of man and radically changes everything. The Gospel comes in and radically changes us and our fear of man transforms us. The Gospel reminds us that God Himself is Lord and King. And that our biggest problem in life is not what men may think of us, it's what God thinks of us. And apart from Christ, in ourselves, our natural state, we are alienated from God. We are sinners. We have rebelled against Him. And our biggest problem is not what people think of us, it's what God thinks of us. His opinion matters most. And if we are in a state of rebellion against Him, we should be in fear. Because He's holy. And He's good. He's not a clown. He's not a a dumb old man who's half deaf. He's a holy, good, and just God who rules over all things. And yet, He's gracious. And He's provided for His enemies in His Son, in His Son's death, to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to Him. The most important thing is what God thinks of us. And if we understand that, we're going to run to Jesus and say, help me, Lord. I need Jesus. I need somebody to stand before the Father to pay for my sins and to represent me, to save me, to rescue me from this state. And He says, Come to me. I will never turn away anybody who comes. So the Gospel comes in and provides for us in our greatest need. 
provides for us in regards to the opinion that matters most. And now because of the Gospel, because of Christ's righteousness, His death and His resurrection, we're forgiven. And God's opinion of us now in Christ is amazingly favorable. It's, it's, just, it's astounding that if you are connected to Christ through faith, He regards you the same way He regards His Son. And all of His Son's rewards are a part of your inheritance. And that inheritance is sure. You are forgiven. You are loved. And you will be with Him forever. You will experience Him forever. And now He uses all things, even tragedies, to shape you and to work out His purposes through you to bless others and do many things. He is in control. So the Gospel comes in. The truth of Christ and His life, death, and resurrection and His return comes in and radically turns this fear of man, fear of God thing upside down. Now we no longer need to live in reference to men's opinions, at least as our chief reference point. But instead, we find our lives changed. Really, the fear of man is about loving ourselves and using others to serve ourselves. So we use others as idols. Tell me, tell me I'm good, please. Tell me, tell me I'm a good person. Tell me I'm someone valuable, important, because I need to feel good about myself. No, 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 don't tell me that evil thing. Don't tell me that bad thing about me. I don't want to be around you. It's idolatry of people. But God comes in with the Gospel and grants us by grace repentance from sin. And we see Christ in His beauty and glory. And we put our trust in Him. And we say, Lord Jesus, You're the one that I love the most. And You loved me. And my life now is in You. You, whose opinion matters most, gave Yourself for me so I could be forgiven and accepted and loved. And You love me. But Lord, I love You. It's not about me anymore. I've died with You and I live with You now. And You're my life. You're my joy. You're my reference point. So, Let's not worry anymore about what people think. And now, Peter calls us and Scripture calls us to relate to people in a radically different way. We don't ignore them. We don't say, forget it. I don't want anything to do with people because all they did was make me feel bad and, and, I, and I have this addiction to people that I get into. I have nothing to do with people anymore. No, it's quite the opposite. In this section of Scripture, Peter calls us to relate to people in a radically different way. Instead of fearing men, we are now to serve others and to love them even when they are unkind to us, even when mistreated. So in this section, Peter calls us to two ways of living and relating to others. As the Gospel comes and radically changes how we live from fearing man, it changes us to fear God, to have God as a reference point, and love men, as it gives us the power to put fear of man to death and live in the fear of God, Peter calls us to live certain ways. So there's two things that he calls us to. He calls us to live as witness, as witnesses to Him in love. And he calls us to endure mistreatment while continuing to do good. These are both how we are to relate to people. As we set apart Christ as holy, as we live in reference to Him, as we remember the Gospel and experience its power in our lives, we are to live to love others, to serve others, not in fear of man. So he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. To live with Christ as holy is to be always prepared 
to tell others for the reason of the hope that is in us. To have the fear of God define our lives, to, to live in the Gospel, is to be always prepared to tell others. It changes our way of relating to people. So now we love them and we want to testify to them about Christ. A sure sign that the fear of God has replaced the fear of man is activity in sharing Christ with others. And the converse is true. If we hesitate to share Christ, if we are presented with opportunities where people do ask us for the reason that the hope is in us, and that those, the, the asking doesn't always come in the form of, please tell me about Jesus Christ. I need to hear the reason for the hope that's in you. Sometimes it can just be like, how can you be doing okay given all that's going on in your life? That's an opportunity. It can be even little hints here and there. It comes in many forms, but it's basically the inquisitiveness that comes from those around us in our spheres. And it happens all the time. You don't have to go out in the streets to find this opportunity. We all live in spheres with people around us. It's that inquisitiveness that asks for the reason of the hope that's in us. And if we set apart Christ as holy, if the fear of God is what defines our life versus the fear of man, we have this different orientation to others. We're, we're not going to struggle with being afraid in the same way. Now, now we're still going to struggle. It isn't like a day and night thing. Boom, you're done. No more fear of man, all fear of God. There will always be temptation there. But as the Gospel informs our mind and our hearts, and as it changes how we relate to people, when those opportunities come, which always will come, There'll be that desire to share. The converse is true. If you find yourself resisting that, you have not adequately grasped the gospel and its transforming nature and how we relate to God and men and women. To be ashamed of the gospel is contrary to the gospel itself. This must never be. Sadly, it is. It is for me at times. Uh, last November, I went to this great conference on evangelism. And I was just really stoked uh, by what was said. It was a wonderful conference at our sister church fellowship in Philadelphia. And they presented this just wonderful model uh, based on truth of, of evangelism for a church. And, and they're just modeling this in, in, in really in every arena of church life. Uh, everything they do, evangelism has a place, and they're walking that out, both programmatically and personally, and they're bearing fruit. And, and I came back from that conference really excited. And I came back with one key application. One thing that they do for their pastors in particular is weekly they go out and, and look to share Christ with people. It has this wonderful effect in their lives of just sharpening them and giving opportunities to share Christ, and, and it, it permeates really everything about them. So I came back from that conference really on fire. Yeah, this is great. I want to grow. And, and I'm going to every week go out and share Christ with somebody. And, and, and it wasn't like uh, a crazy thing for me. I've done that before. I've done it lots of times. So it wasn't anything new. I know how to do it. And actually, I also have the advantage as a pastor. I have, I have a little bit of a, a cheat as a pastor. I can go out and just interact with somebody and within the first sentence just say, oh, I'm a pastor and just talking to people about spiritual things. And it's, a, it's an okay to pass usually right then. I have this leverage in some ways. It's unfair. Um, 
Well, I just thought of ways I could let you guys use that too. But anyhow, um, you can just say you're a minister, right? Every believer is a minister. So anyhow, anyhow, I have this advantage. So I have all these reasons to do it. And it was back in November. And you know how many times I've gone out and done this since November? Meh. Zero times. And that's, that's sad. And I'm not saying you need to do this either. There's plenty of spheres all around us. As a pastor, for me, this is an important one to, to do. But I haven't done it. And, uh, and it's been something that's been weighing on me. And, and it is contrary to the Gospel for me not to do this. And so I'm excited, first off, that I'm forgiven. My Lord loves me. He's given Himself for me. He's patient. And the Christian life is not one of looking back. It's one of looking forward. Lord, forgive me. Help me. I want to walk in Your ways. And I'm excited actually uh, for, for Andy Doyle. Uh, Andy, uh, Andy and Shelley are moving to the area. And Andy is uh, going to be helping us as a church in areas of evangelism. He's a seminary student, and, and one of his things to do as part of our church and as development as a seminary student is to help us in evangelism. And so when I sat down with Andy to talk about things we want to do, can you guess what was at the top of the list? Not some grand program for evangelism. It was just, Andy, would you keep me accountable? Would you encourage me in this area? And can we get together weekly and pray and go out and do it together? So I'm excited for that. It's God's provision for me to have Andy serving that way. And so we are called to this. I'm called to this. We are called to be a people who, who live this way, sharing Christ because of this radical power of the Gospel to transform our fear of man into right fear of God and love of man. There's one other thing that Peter calls us to in this passage. Uh, he calls us to endure mistreatment from others. So as we relate to others, we... If we live in the fear of man, we're always going to be in this love-hate relationship. And when people mistreat me, we're going to mistreat us. We're going to be upset. Oh, this is terrible. How can you treat me this way? And I don't feel good about myself. But if we live in the gospel and the fear of God, when people mistreat us, it just doesn't get the traction it used to. If we live in the love of God, the fear of God, we're to respect others. So Peter calls us, when we share the gospel, to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As people relate to us in an unkind way, we are to relate to them respectfully and gently. Even when they mock and oppose the gospel or, or give us a hard time. Just do that maybe because we're sharing the gospel, or maybe just because for some other reason. We are to continue to do good, to live in a good conscience to do good before the Lord, to love others. We are to do that so that as we do that, they might be put to shame. And Peter has different motivations we've talked about in this, that they might come to glorify God. They might be put to shame. Lord will and their shame will result in repentance and faith. But ultimately, they might be ashamed of the final day as well. Our behavior should should be part of what makes them ashamed, recognizing they have been foolish to treat us the way they do when we have been kind and loving and patient like the Lord is, like the Lord was Himself as He was mistreated. Living in the fear of God means we patiently endure mistreatment from others knowing that God sees us and God is pleased with us 
in Christ. He's pleased with our faith and obedience. And He will judge justly. And He will sort out everything in the end. And He will pass out the rewards. And our eyes are on that point. On Him. He is our point of reference. So we endure injustice. God is our reference point. If the band could come up as we close. The Gospel comes and teaches us that God is our reference point. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And if we live in light of that, we can endure these light and momentary afflictions. And they are light and they are momentary. If we live in light of this, we can endure. We can continue to love others, to share Christ with them, and to endure mistreatment. As the band comes up and as they prepare, I just want to give us about a minute or so to think about this because I don't want to finish up this topic without some application because for me, for all of us, this is very real. We live in fear. God wants to free us from that. The fear of God frees us from the fear of man. He wants to to give us power to live in that, to love and serve others. And there are many, many applications. Sharing the Gospel, enduring mistreatment in others. So I just want you to take a minute to quietly, prayerfully go before the Lord and consider is there one area to pray about and one area by God's grace to implement, to pray and implement. Just one area, one small step. Let's take about a minute to do that and then we'll close in song.